welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, Putin's nuclear threat. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. Speaking from Poland, U.S. President Joe Biden insists Russia will never win in Ukraine, while Vladimir Putin says the West is raging war on Russia and pulls out of a key nuclear arms agreement. Poland's ambassador to Canada is live here in moments then. Former Foreign Affairs Ministers John Manley and Peter McKay will join us. Plus, closing Roxham Road. Quebec's problem is also Canada's problem. It is not any other country's jobs to protect our borders. Quebec's Premier and Federal Tory leader Pierre Polyev want the unofficial border crossing shut down as tens of thousands of asylum seekers continue to cross into Canada at the New York state border. What does Ottawa plan to do? I'll ask Immigration Minister Sean Fraser coming up. Then, Ottawa abandoned. Doug Ford under fire at Queen's Park for how he handled last year's Freedom Convoy blockade. Our front bench panel will dig into the pressure on the Premier just ahead. But first... Let's start with a tale of dueling speeches. Days before the one-year anniversary of his war on Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin lashed out at the West in his State of the Nation address. Putin accused Ukraine's allies in the West of waging war on Russia and, quote, forcing him to suspend Russia's participation in a key nuclear agreement with the U.S., Facing that renewed nuclear threat, U.S. President Joe Biden doubled down on support for Ukraine from Warsaw, Poland. Speaking to a crowd of 30,000 people, Biden said this. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. Poland's ambassador to Canada, Witold Jelski, is here to help us unpack some of those comments. Hi, Ambassador. Good to see you. Good. Thank you very much for making the time this evening. Absolutely. Thank you. How significant is it that the U.S. president came from Kyiv and made the speech he did today in Poland? Poland, throughout the years, many years, uh, and many terms of different presidents, had uh, has had a special relationship with the United States. Uh, I personally uh, um, had the chance to uh, work on three visits of uh, uh, President Obama to Poland, one visit of President Trump. Now it's, uh, well, I'm not in Poland right now, but I observed the second visit of, of President Biden, which is great. It shows the special link, especially today it is... Uh, it is very important since Poland plays such an important role in the in the context of uh, war in Ukraine right now. And it's in that context, right, that the president from the United States made the speech today. It's that we are just a few days away of marking this awful anniversary of one mm -hmm. year of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, is it more significant that he made those comments in Europe, right next door to where this is all unfolding, than if he had said them in Washington? <sighs> It, it is spectacular that he went to Ukraine a couple of days ago, which was a surprise, and it's, uh, it's uh, absolutely marvelous that this visit was kept in such a secret. It's very difficult with the organization of the visit of American president. But um, uh, so the words he said in, in, in Kiev are very important. And then um, coming to Poland, which is uh, basically a hub for international support to Ukraine, um, and the words were absolutely significant uh, with the recognition of the role of Pol that Poland played, the Polish people played in, in, uh, throughout the last year, but also recognizing the, the actions and the support of the international community. I think Poland is the place to talk about such issues because the whole international support uh, in 
all possible realms is coming, a majority of, the, of, of it is coming through Poland. And, and, and the president certainly did talk about or insisted that that support would be there right until the very end. That's basically word for word what mm -hmm. he said. At the same time, Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is, is making a state of the nation address, as, as we uh, highlighted there, basically accusing the West through that support of waging its own war on Russia, which is probably not a surprise. But he, he kind of uh, packs that together with the idea that he's going to suspend Russia's participation in this nuclear arms treaty. Uh, what do you take away from that? I, uh, <clears throat> I think many experts were worried that the words of uh, Putin would be uh, stronger. Uh, but the, the, the message for me from his speech is that, uh, first of all, there was uh, lack of content uh, in the... Um, um, even though it was two hours. Even though it was two hours. Uh, and the message, uh, the nuclear message, is not as strong as some might want to, fortunately as some might uh, expect it, because it's the suspension, it's not necessarily the withdrawal, um, and it's a suspension of, uh, um, of, of a system which does not work anyway. So, you know, those, those inspections uh, uh, were, you know, difficult or, or didn't work for a number of uh, reasons. So it's, uh, I, uh, my hope is that at this point we do not need to worry about the uh, nuclear context. So, so then what is Putin's angle here today, do you think? What, what message is he trying to deliver to the West? Well, uh, his, his messaging were, was um, about words, is, uh, again, m about misconceptions and manipulations uh, on the histor historical level, uh, on, the, on, on the level of, of the role Russia played in the, in the, in the horrid aggression on, uh, on the Ukraine. I think um, even he is uh, right now in the in the wait and see mode because he he, he I mean at this point he even he has to understand uh, that uh, the level of complexity of the situation the fact that he on so many fronts he already lost the war on the political sense in the international arena in in the area of restricting uh, the role of NATO in the region he achieved exactly the opposite mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 so. Uh, and both sides are in the mode of uh, um, of uh, entering into the, the, the some sort of counteroffensive. So uh, I, I I don't see any you know any special content in the in the words that he uh, presented. So let me ask you then: the one place where, where Russia has not lost yet is on the ground. In mm -hmm. when you talk about the offensive that that both are expected to mount against each other, yes. key to that, according to Ukraine's president, is the supply of fighter jets. Mm -hmm. Poland has signaled that it is willing to supply uh, fighter jets, the MiGs, but does not want to go it alone. Would like allies more largely to at least lend some to offset the, that supply. Where do those discussions stand? And is the line kind of black and white for Poland? Uh, will Poland not go that alone? Mm -hmm. uh, Poland was on the lead on, on most of the significant topics uh, during the war, whether it was sanctions, whether it was you know some pre preliminary ideas on military support, uh, recently whether it was Leopard tanks, so the modern modern mm -hmm. equipment. Um, we were already in the conversation on, on fighter jets by, back in the day, and our position is, uh, is similar today as it, as, it, as it was before. We believe uh, all possible supports uh, and that the, the the allies I are able to, to provide is needed, um, uh, but in the case of fighter jets, uh, 
it is a little bit more 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 complicated, and we um, I, I I don't I wouldn't um, believe that Pol Polish politicians would do the same thing as it was the case with Leopards. That uh, Polish president said that we will simply provide the Leopard tanks. Uh, we will not do it alone in terms of um, there's of, a difference. Of just, there there is a there is a tactical difference and there is a political difference and a strategic difference. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. I appreciate your time this evening. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Thank you. That's uh, Poland's ambassador to Canada, Witold Jelski. Let's get some more perspective now on what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Uh, from two of Canada's former foreign affairs ministers, John Manley was also a former Liberal Deputy Prime Minister. He's now a senior business advisor with Bennett Jones. Peter McKay was also a former Conservative Defence Minister, and he's now a strategic advisor for Deloitte and McKinnis Cooper. Hi, Mr. McKay. Hi, Mr. Manley. Good to see you both. Uh, Mr. McKay, I'm going to start Thanks, with you, and, and I'll pick up where I left off with the ambassador on the subject of uh, fighter jets and Ukraine's kind of need for this next step. Uh, you heard the ambassador say that this is a bit politically and tactically different than, for example, even the tanks. Do you expect this to be a different discussion among allies? Uh, I do, for the, the, the reasons that the ambassador alluded to. It's a uh, it's an area that creates greater complexity and greater danger as, as far as those NATO countries coming into a direct conflict with, uh, with Russia, which, as you know, triggers Article 5 and, and everybody is all in. But they, the Polish have been by far the country that's been most forward-leaning, both in terms of compassionate aid and taking fleeing Ukrainians, but also in terms of, of the aid with uh, the military aid with tanks, with artillery, and and a very early commitment to provide these MiG fighter planes, which Vashi, as you may know, are the same planes that Ukraine has been flying and, and has a small number of, and it's the same plane that's made in Russia. So there is, uh, there is a possibility that this could happen, but they don't want to be isolated. They want to know that uh, they will have the support of other countries, most notably the United States, and certainly the visit of President Biden this week uh, goes a long way to give that sense of security and support. And they also want to know that if they if they give these planes up, that they will receive others to replace them because mm -hmm. there is real and, and justifiable fear that they could be next, that they could very well wind up uh, pulled into this conflict and that uh, who knows the outcome of, of uh, what's happening on the ground in Ukraine just yet that Poland is also at some degree of risk, and they would be closest to the conflict. Mr. Manley, I think if, if I had asked the same question of both of you and the three of us were talking a year ago, it would be hard to imagine a world in which we were supplying tanks and the amount of lethal aid that the West is supplying Ukraine and has kind of the, the evolution of that position among Ukraine, uh, Canada, and, and all of our allies. Do you envision a, a point at which the, the fighter jet conversation changes too? Well, you're right. None of us could have foreseen what's happened. And uh, quite honestly, uh, at the end of February last year, I didn't think this conflict would last that long. I thought that the odds were in favor of, uh, of the Russians uh, really bringing about the collapse of the Ukrainian government. They had overwhelming force. Uh, what they didn't have was a plan, and they didn't have trained uh, troops. And they underestimated the determination of the Ukrainians to protect their own their own territory, territory, and I think all of us underestimated the capacity and the communications ability of, of President Zelensky, who has been um, a formidable uh, asset for uh, Ukraine in all of this. None of this was foreseeable. I think the problem 
here uh, that we're going to deal with, uh, Vashi, is that we're both sides are actually running out of some of the uh, resources that are necessary. Uh, Russia has been able to put its economy essentially on a war footing. Uh, they're they're targeting the production of of, of uh, weaponry. Um, they are being supplied by uh, Iran uh, to a very great extent. Uh, China has been on the sidelines, um, but I think comments at the Munich Security Conference this past week suggest that that may not be a permanent situation if there is no uh, if there's no ceasefire. Uh, and so I. And, and on the Western side, let's face it, <laughs> there's only so many planes. Quite apart from planes, there's only so much other equipment. Um, and the uh, U.S. industrial military complex is reluctant to go all out in production without assurances that governments are going to continue buying. And it's not clear that Congress would give that authority if the administration sought it. So. Both sides are running low on weaponry. Both sides are running low on human resources. Um, there's really no way to resolve this at the present time. There's no off-ramp. There are on-ramps to greater escalation, which is why the N-word is getting used. But really, I don't, I don't see how we get out of this in, uh, in the short term. So, so, Mr. McKay, when, when you think about the potential for an off-ramp, do you agree with the assessment it's hard to see one? And, and if so, what are the kind of wider consequences for Canada and our allies? I, I definitely agree with, with John's assessment that uh, there is no end in sight and, and arguably no end game. Uh, and I'm not sure there really ever was. Vladimir Putin has had almost a delusional vision for his plans to recreate the, the, uh, the Soviet Union. That, that was simply never going to happen. And yet, uh, for all of the death and destruction, and, and it has been significant, tens of thousands dead, hundreds of thousands uh, wounded, you know, trillions of, of infrastructure damage and environmental degradation and the, the spillover effects that this has had for both energy and food and environment, all of this has been uh, truly shocking the last year when you take stock of all that has happened. And, you know, to come back to John's reference to nuclear escalation and what Putin has said today about pulling back from the START Treaty, I, I thought it was telling that uh, the former president, former prime minister, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, spoke about a nuclear power losing a conventional war increases the likelihood of a nuclear war. And this, of course, is, is another startling comment coming from a high-ranking Russian. But it, uh, it is part, I believe, of the, the saber-rattling, threatening nature of all of the communication coming out of Russia. And let's not lose sight of what was said today by Putin is, is very much to a Russian audience. This is meant to have people rally around the flag, to create further false narrative that Russia itself was under attack and is the victim and somehow the West are to blame for all of this and uh, that, that Ukraine is really just a, a pawn in this global game. But the challenge, as John alluded to, and, and the challenge for, for all NATO countries, Western countries, particularly those in the region, is how does this end and, and how can we, in, in any realistic world, see 
anything but the complete defeat of Russia, and that is to push them right back to the territorial boundaries that were there before not just the invasion, Vasi, but this goes back to the invasion and annexation of Crimea in 2014. And so this is, a, this is a, a stalemate that is going to grind on for a significant period of time. And there is many, many more risks uh, as more equipment, more deadly weapons are, are brought to the front and more individuals are put in harm's way with no ability, it, it would appear, on the part of, uh, of Putin to, to back off. He's, uh, he's clearly yeah. all in. And, uh, and is intent on trying to overrun the entire country of Ukraine. And that will not happen. Uh, Mr. Manley, last word, too. I just have 30 seconds left. It, it, just based on what both you and, and Mr. McKay laid out, how challenging does that become for Canada, for example, in its efforts to, as Joe Biden uh, put it today, you know, stand with Ukraine until the end? Oh, I think it's quite simple for Canada. Uh, we are fully behind NATO. We've we need NATO as we never did before. Let's remember, we have essentially a border, a very long northern border with Russia. Uh, and uh, we take uh, President Biden's lead on that. He is, uh, once again, uh, the U.S. president is, you might say, the leader of the free world. Um, and uh, we're with him 100 percent. I don't think there's much room for doubt. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much, both of you, for your insights and your analysis tonight, Peter McKay and John Manley. We do have a lot more coming up tonight on Power Play. Up next, Quebec wants the federal government to do something about asylum seekers coming into that province from the U.S. What are the feds prepared to do? I'm going to ask Immigration Minister Sean Fraser after a very quick break. Stay right there. We didn't have a problem at Roxham Road before Justin Trudeau. This is a problem that followed him. It didn't precede him. And secondly, he's the Prime Minister of Canada. If Canada is a country, then it has borders. And if the Prime Minister is the head of the government, he is responsible for protecting those borders. I think it's important for everybody to understand that Quebec's problem is also Canada's problem. Currently, 40,000 people in the past year via Roxham, we've gone over our ability to welcome them. Quebec's Premier Francois Legault there demanding the feds redirect asylum seekers irregularly crossing into Canada to other provinces. And federal Tory leader Pierre Polyev before him says he wants Ottawa to shut down Roxham Road. That's the portion of the border between Quebec and the U.S. that is not covered by what's known as the Safe Third Country Agreement. That agreement has been in place since 2004 and stipulates if someone comes from the U.S. to Canada to seek asylum, they'll be turned back to the U.S. to make their claim there. But the agreement does not apply in between official points of entry. So people seeking asylum cross by foot and then make their claims here in Canada. Last year alone, over 39,000 migrants crossed at Roxham Road. The feds say they are working to, quote, modernize the agreement with the U.S. So what exactly does that mean? Sean Fraser is the federal minister of immigration and refugees. Hi, Minister Fraser. Good to see you. Thank you for making the time. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Minister, Premier Legault wants the safe third country agreement to apply at Roxham Road. If your government's negotiations with the U.S. are successful, is that what your government wants to see too? 
Uh, what we're hoping to see is uh, the promotion of regular migration channels and to discourage people from crossing in an irregular way. Uh, keep in mind that people make asylum claims now not just at Roxham Road, but across the Canadian border, including uh, uh, through, through people who arrive by air. Uh, there's a number of different aspects for this, but across the board, we're trying to promote uh, open immigration policies, but a controlled border. Uh, this is the, the path forward to treat people with respect and to provide an opportunity for those in search of safe haven to find it in Canada, uh, but to do it in an organized way, uh, in, including at the border. So can I ask you to be specific about what exactly that means? Because my question was whether or not the agreement should apply at the Quebec border. I take your point that there are people uh, claiming asylum through other border points, but the numbers are very minimal compared to Quebec, about 39,000 to 300 and something actually. So a big disparity there. So at Quebec, is it your government's preference for uh, asylum seekers along that entire stretch to be turned back to the United States eventually if your negotiations are successful with the U.S.? Well, well, the whole principle behind the Safe Third Country Agreement is if they have the opportunity to make a, an asylum claim in a country where they can have it fairly heard and are safe, that we would prefer for them to do so. Uh, the reality is that there are existing exceptions to those rules in certain circumstances. For example, people who are seeking to be reunified with family members. I hesitate to get too deep into the very specific provisions of an agreement that is not yet finalized because we do have work to do with our American counterparts. And this is a discussion that's taking place in real time. Uh, but the general principle behind the Safe Third Country Agreement is that people should be able to make an asylum claim in the country where they are first safe to do so, uh, which would encourage people who are currently uh, crossing at Roxham Road to make an asylum claim in the United States if they find themselves there before an onward journey into Canada. How are you going to accomplish that without the agreement, though, applying to Roxham Road? Well, I think that's one of the points that we uh, need to continue discussing with our partners uh, at the United States. Uh, in the meantime, there's things we need to do uh, within Canada to treat people with respect who have come here under existing laws and made an asylum claim. Uh, but dealing with the situation at the border, including at Roxham Road, is certainly one of the key points of discussion between Canada and the United States as we seek to modernize the Safe Third Country Agreement to provide a lasting solution. What is the impetus for the United States to make any changes? Why, for example, would they want those 39,000 people seeking asylum to do so in the United States? Does, don't they have much to lose and, and Canada only has something to gain? Um, the reality in the United States from my conversations is that they are uh, demonstrating political will to work with us to find a, a lasting solution. Uh, as you can imagine, making sure that there is a, a secure border is, is a, a major priority for the United States. Of course, disproportionately, their concern is at the, the southern border between Mexico and the United States. Uh, but they're very serious about making sure that they have orderly operations at the U.S.-Canadian border as well. Uh, you will have seen uh, recent stories in the uh, American news networks about uh, northern border security caucuses uh, emerging from certain wings of, uh, of political parties in the United States. Uh, but more than that, my sense is they want to be a good partner uh, with Canada. They are our largest and most important partner uh, from an economic and social point of view. And they want to make sure that we have uh, an arrangement that suits both the American and Canadian interests when it comes to uh, promoting regular and orderly migration. Minister, uh, with respect, if in fact that political will did ex does exist and, and if they want to be a good neighbour and a good friend to Canada, why hasn't your government been able to capitalise on that? You've been in these discussions to modernise this agreement for more than five years and there has been no such modernization taking place. Why not? 
Uh, well, for a significant portion of that uh, five-year period that you've just refer referred to, uh, the border was closed, in particular over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, new rules were put in place where people would have been turned back at the border had they tried to cross as part of the public health response to prevent the spread of COVID-19 in communities. It was only when the border reopened for discretionary travel uh, that this became an, an issue that saw people seeking to cross in an irregular way again. Uh, of course, these conversations don't just play out uh, uh, over a matter of days or months. Uh, this is an issue that dates back uh, uh, nearly 20 years where the agreement was first concluded between the United States and Canada. Managing the migration between Canada and the U.S., both regular and irregular, is going to be a topic of conversation that continues as, as long as uh, Canada and the United States shares a border. Uh, this is merely the next phase in these conversations that we want to continue to have, to have an orderly arrangement that promotes regular migration across the U.S.-Canada border. And Minister, again, I have to challenge you because I do understand that, that COVID changed the game for a few years when the, when the border was shut down. But this issue existed for a number of years prior to the pandemic, prior to the border being closed. Your government had no movement in that period on modernizing the agreement. Why should Canadians believe that there, such a modernization will occur now? Well, I can speak from my, my own experience. Uh, my, my sense is in the last number of weeks in particular, uh, there's been some uh, real optimism that I have that we're moving in the right direction in our conversations with our American counterparts. I spoke to the Canadian ambassador just a matter of days ago within the next few weeks. I expect to be having my next meeting with my American counterpart to discuss the next phase of the Safe Third Country Agreement. It is a work in progress. There is work that remains to be done and regulatory processes on the American side of the border as well as uh, whatever measures we must implement in Canada. Uh, but my sense is, is one of optimism that we'll be able to find a lasting solution in a relatively short period of time. What does a relatively short period of time mean? And I ask again, not sort of glibly, but because it's been more than five years. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I expect that we're going to have progress over the next few months, uh, but the reality is uh, there are certain factors that are not uh, nailed down. I have no announcement to, to make as part of our, uh, our conversation today, uh, but we need to respect the conversations that we're having privately with the United States uh, in order to give them uh, space to continue the conversation with us, but also to uh, move forward with the regulatory processes that they need to uh, undertake within the, the own American political context. Um, we don't have a, a, a firm date where we expect uh, an announcement to come forward, uh, but I have been encouraged by the nature of the conversations moving towards uh, a resolution of our, our uh, discussions to modernize the Safe Third Country Agreement, in particular in, in recent weeks. Will this be on the agenda when President Biden visits Canada? Uh, look, uh, with uh, respect, I think you'll probably appreciate that I don't set the agenda for meetings between the uh, president and prime minister, uh, but it's an ongoing conversation we've been having, not just at an official's level, but that I've had with my counterpart. And as I said just a moment ago, uh, expect to be meeting over the next few weeks to discuss it personally as well. Uh, we're going to continue to move forward, and depending on the uh, particular status of our conversations at the time, it may well be something the Prime Minister chooses to raise, as I know he has with uh, some uh, other American political actors uh, more recently. I, I, and I get that you're not setting the agenda and you're not, you don't have a crystal ball for it, but I'm trying to ascertain for Canadians watching tonight where this falls on the priority list in the relationship between our two countries. And, and you can't even tell me for sure at this point that the Prime Minister will be talking to the President about the issue? Um, I, I expect they may uh, discuss this issue uh, amongst a, a range of others, uh, but I can uh, assure Canadians that uh, making sure that we have an orderly arrangement at the border is a top priority 
security for, for Canada. Uh, we want to maintain controlled borders that have open doors for, for people who are coming for economic, humanitarian, or family reunification purposes. Uh, this is something that has our full attention. Uh, we're working to put a plan in place not just to finalize a safe third country agreement, uh, but to more equitably spread out people to communities that have the capacity to house them and to create economic opportunities for employers to put people to work who might find themselves here now. There's no silver bullet to solving a very difficult challenge, uh, but we're in a, the reality of a situation where we have many people who've come here irregularly. We want to treat them with respect as we continue to move forward with a lasting solution to the Safe Third Country Agreement. Okay, Minister Fraser, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your time this evening. Uh, pleasure as always. Thank you so much, Fashi. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser there. I'm going to take a quick break here on PowerPlay on the other end of that break, though. The front bench panel will join me. They'll weigh in on what you just heard from the minister with me tonight. Brian Gallant, Lisa Ray, Tom Mulcair, and Emily Nicola. We are back in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Happily, there is a solution. And the Prime Minister accidentally demonstrated it during COVID. He closed Roxham Road during the COVID period. But then he decided to reopen it. That was a decision. It wasn't an accident. So we as a country can close that border crossing. But dealing with the situation at the border, including at Roxham Road, is certainly one of the key points of discussion between Canada and the United States as we seek to modernize the Safe Third Country Agreement to provide a lasting solution. A little bit there of the political back and forth between the leader of the opposition and the federal minister in charge of immigration and refugees in this country, Sean Fraser, from earlier on the program. That political back and forth is very much focused on what's known as Roxham Road. That's the piece of the border between Canada and the U.S. in Quebec that has basically become an irregular point of entry for last year's 39,000 people seeking asylum from the United States. Let's bring in the front bench to talk about some of that political back Back and forth with me this evening, former New Brunswick Liberal Premier Brian Gallant. He's the CEO of Space Canada now. Former Conservative Deputy Leader Lisa Raitt is here as well. She's the Vice Chair and Managing Director of Global Investment Banking at CIBC. CTV News political analyst and former NDP leader Tom Mulcair is here this evening, as is Le Devoir columnist Emily Nicola. Hi, everybody. Really good to see you. Hi, uh, Tom, I'm going to start with you because... It's, there's a sort of tactical, logistical, I don't know what the right word to use. It. There's stuff happening here that Quebec legitimately has an issue with. But there's a lot of politics at play too, right? This has long been an issue for Quebec. And certainly control over immigration is something that the Premier wants more of. Absolutely. It was one of the three things that he set out when he was about to win the election in 2018. Language, culture, immigration. He says, we haven't gotten to separation in these grand evening, the evenings we planned around our referenda. So this time we're going to go at it, meaning some form of autonomy, step by step. And this is one of the steps. And you're quite right to put that in the context here. Roxham Road is a problem because, of course, the easy answer from Poiliev is shut that down. But the next road over on the Canada-U.S. border would open up. These are irregular crossings. Under the safe third-party agreement, if you come to a regular border crossing, you're told, no, the United States obeys the same international laws as Canada. You have to start your process of asking for asylum in the United States. So that's part of the deal here. We've got to look at that agreement. By the way, we're allowed to leave that agreement. Poiliev is quite right on that. And I think that this is the type of thing that Mr. Trudeau has to be looking at. 
I think that Legault held back quite a bit. He's got a very bad track record when talking about immigration issues. So this is something that he set down in writing first in writing to Trudeau yesterday and today in an English piece in the Globe and Mail that was quite well crafted because it doesn't reflect badly on Quebec's history of dealing with these issues. In fact, he gives chapter and verse of times when Quebec has stepped up to the plate and let in very large numbers of people seeking refuge. But what he's saying is it can't continue. We're talking 40,000 people last year on top of all the other immigration that has been let in under the regular routes and we're just running out of capacity. We're saturated with regard to housing, with regard to medical care with regard to schools. And he's simply making that plea to Trudeau. But it's a very strong weight against Trudeau, who it should be recalled when Trump was in power. Mr. Trudeau boasted, don't worry about it. Here, the door is always going to be open. Well, that was heard by a lot of people. And now they're trying to use that open door. And I remember, Lisa, at the time when those comments were made, there was, a, you know, a political firestorm around them. There was a ton of scrutiny on the way in which the border was being handled. And that abated because of COVID and, and the fact that the border was closed. And as soon as the border opened up again, lo and behold, the feds are faced with this issue. They say that there's discussions going on to modernize the agreement. The thing that I'm having trouble trying to get a, a real answer on is, like, what does a modernized safe third country agreement look like? Like, what is the sort of objective if, if it exists? You're searching for an answer that no one's going to give you, Vashi, because there is no clean answer on this. It's a bad yeah. situation. Sean has the worst file that he's sitting with right now. And it's, it's very troubling because it is very easy for Pierre to say, just shut it down. And then Tom points out, right, well, another place along the border will open up. The reality is, is that if you're looking to the United States, to give you a process that you're going to solve this problem that we're having with respect to Roxham Road in particular, you're not going to get it from them. They have two million people coming in across their southern border that they want to deal with. They're worried about the immigrant lines that are coming up from South America. They're not worried about what's happening to the north of the border. And in fact, in the last meeting between uh, the president, Mexico and Canada, uh, on the table from the U.S. was, Canada, how are you going to help us with our problem on our southern border? So lots of discussion right. around the area. I don't expect there's going to be any kind of solution put forward. It's the adage that politicians will use, you know, um, don't make a decision unless you have to make a decision. I don't know how far this is going to be allowed to boil before the Liberal government does something, but I can tell you that the mayor of Niagara Falls was on local talk radio here in Toronto talking about the fact that there are no hotel rooms available for tourists because so many people from Roxham Road are currently living there. I think Lisa makes a good point, Brian, in that I, I can't figure out what the U.S.'s motivation to change the arrangement would be. Does the, does the result then be for the feds that they end up doing more of what they're doing now, basically addressing the issue as it exists, setting up places to process them, housing them in hotels? And, and if that is the solution, how sustainable is it? It is definitely a possibility that we're going to have to come to grips with or the federal government's going to have to come to grips with and Canadians ultimately will because I think that's why the minister, when you just had that interview with him, wasn't committing to even the fact that it might be discussed because I think they know internally that this is probably not one in which the U.S. is really well positioned to help them get uh, solve this problem and, 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 um, and find a way, a solution that works for everyone. So given that, I, I think you're right. I, I think Legault's points are, are, are fair, many of them. I think the idea of saying, look, we've accepted 
tens of thousands. Uh, it's a lot for one province, which is completely right. It, we need help, whether it be the federal government providing support, whether it be other provinces uh, taking up some of the load, which we see that happening in the last few days. I think that's all very fair. And the idea that we discuss uh, with the U.S. how we could potentially have a better, a better agreement or maybe even walk from the agreement, and even sending messages that this is not the right way to do things, I think are all ways in which we'll help a little bit. But, but I have to put it into perspective uh, for a moment. I mean, if you look at some of the footage that, that news outlets have, have uh, used to cover this, I mean, it's heartbreaking. You see children with, with Somebody died there yeah, last month. children with suitcases, their whole lives in suitcases, just looking for a better life. I mean, they're flying uh, across the world, uh, going to a country where they know they're going to get arrested. I mean, that the plan is the 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 hope that they have is they get arrested by a Canadian RCMP officer, uh, you, most likely getting arrested in a language you can't speak. Uh, I, I can only assume it's horrifying for them, it's traumatic, and I mean if people are doing this it is because they are fleeing from very difficult, life-threatening, in many cases, situations. So we, we just have to have that in the, at the forefront of this discussion, remembering the, the humanity that we have to show as a country. And look, Trudeau saying what he did when, when the Trump era with his immigration policies were being enacted, I get it and, I, and it was scrutinized and most likely rightfully so, but, but at the heart of that, I, I think a message to the world that there are countries that are going to continue to be there for you and support you and have humanity at the center of it was an important message. Maybe, maybe the exact wording could have been different, but, but I do think we have to have that at the core of whatever we do. Yeah, and I think, though, if, if you're prepared to, to deliver that message, Emily, and it's a, it's a good message to have, we want to be empathetic to people who are struggling, you also have to make sure the solution that you set up is sustainable. And right now, uh, at least you know, looking at the discussion between Premier Legault and the feds, it doesn't look all that sustainable. Um, it's not sustainable, partly because of the, the tug of war that's, that's going on. Um, everybody else uh, that's spoken so far is right to, to say that there are some real challenges uh, put on the Quebec uh, government to be able to welcome so many people when you're not controlling the flow. Um, at the same time, there's been a lot of community organizations who are basically responsible for offering services to the people who are coming in. Uh, helping them find uh, housing, helping them find a job, just getting settled. And those uh, services are not able to provide with the demand. And uh, the Quebec government is actually responsible for giving them uh, more funds. They've, there's been some emergency uh, uh, monies that have come in, but far from enough. And actually, François Legault, many, many people have been accusing François Legault of essentially not helping as much as he could so that the situation gets so dire that that helps him uh, make some points in terms of plea, you know, plea, pleading with the federal government. And so uh, the people that we're, we're just talking about, the children uh, with their suitcases, uh, people playing horrible situations, are being used currently as essentially uh, hockey pucks to score in uh, the federal government goals. And that's uh, also something that a lot of people on the ground have been have been crying as well. So there's a way uh, to address this issue that's incredibly complex without having uh, the people who are at the center of it who haven't asked to be at the center of that. Nobody wants to be fleeing their country. Um, that those those people should not be um, used as as pawns, but that's the way uh, they are being used now. So I think there there should be a way of of figuring out uh, the political situation, and but helping first, and then figuring out who pays for the bill later. Unfortunately, that's not how our system has been working so far.
Okay, I'm gonna leave uh, this part of our conversation there. The Front Bench panel is sticking around. We're gonna take a quick commercial break. We're gonna talk about some of the uh, political pressure. Ontario Premier Doug Ford is under following Justice Paul Rouleau's report late last week on the so-called Freedom Convoy. We're back in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. While federal and municipal officials were meeting regularly to try and navigate this crisis, Ontario's Premier and the ministers responsible ghosted the people of Ottawa. If there are lessons to be learned uh, with respect to better coordination of emergency services on the ground in Ottawa and how they communicate, we will, uh, we will uh, take a look at that. Was Ontario's government missing in action during the convoy, and does it matter politically? Justice Paul Rouleau's Emergencies Act inquiry report kind of lays into the provincial government, saying, I find the province of Ontario's reluctance to become fully engaged in such efforts directed at resolving the situation in Ottawa troubling. As you heard there, Ontario's opposition pounced on that criticism today when politicians returned to the legislature at Queen's Park. So I'll circle back to my original question. What is the political impact of that? Is it a political liability? for example, for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Let's bring back the front bench to weigh in on that. Tom Mulcair, Lisa Raitt, Brian Gallant, and Emily Nicola. Brian, I'll, I'll start with you. The report came out Friday. A lot of people have moved on. Today, the legislature was back on this. Justice Paul Rouleau really did single out Ontario's government. Do you think that, that, that Ford, Ford will suffer for that at all politically? It's not a good day, uh, for sure, whenever, whenever you have an independent third party saying that you basically weren't there for a region of the province that you represent. So I definitely don't think this is a day in which the Ford government feels very good about the uh, potential headlines. That said, I I'm not convinced it's one of those things that stick, uh, that will stick. I, I really do think that the focus of the inquiry was obviously the federal government for, for very evident reasons. So it's not one of these things that will have, I think, a lot of life cycles in the media. It's not one of these things either that I think the, the average person across the province will be thinking about. The one way in which I do, do believe it can have an impact and I say can because it doesn't necessarily mean that it will. It, it's one of those kind of points of light arguments. It, it's one of those things that kind of puts a little bit of a chip in the armor of the idea that the Ford government and the premier himself is a solid leader. So I think that's one chip. It's one point of light. You can only have so many of those until people say that maybe you're failing as a leader. But I just don't think on the on the on the one issue that it's going to be that big of an issue. At least I remember when we were covering the issue of whether or not the premier and the deputy premier in Ontario would come testify when this commission was doing its work and at the time uh, you know people were saying look the the calculation is it's not like there are many votes to be lost by by not showing up right it's not as though downtown Ottawa is the constituency that comes out election after election for the Ford government do you think this matters politically for them no they made this calculation already they're going to take the body blows but I want to point out it's a pretty smart communication strategy because you will have to look very far to find any kind of quotation from Doug Ford on this topic. He didn't go to the Rouleau Commission. He didn't testify. He's not answering questions in the legislature. He is silent on all of this, so he's not giving the opposition anything to hang their hat on. Emily, do you think that is going to be an effective strategy for him, or has it already proven to be? Um, what's, In a way, yes, uh, but the wild card here is that... Um, the convoy is such an emotional issue for people who've gone through it uh, in Ottawa. And you never know actually how people respond to something that is actually quite traumatic for some people who have been living downtown. So some people are just not wanting to hear about it ever again. <laughs> so they're just blocking it out. 
which makes it a politi politically a non-story because people are just so um, eager to move on. And there will there will also be people who will remember. So I don't necessarily see that having an impact on Darkford right now, but it might be used uh, in some writing, in some uh, uh, an argument for canvassing. But as uh, uh, Lisa already pointed out, those were you know writings where the the trauma around that is the highest. Where already writings in large part that didn't have uh, a lot of uh, constituency voting for Darkford, anyways. The only question mark, Tom, I, I kind of still have is around, um, you know, the the kind of polarization that that a lot of that, that you know the the convoy represented. Uh, Doug Ford is not just sort of navigating the constituency in Ottawa or other constituencies, but also the kind of constituency that supported the convoy, right? Like he, those exactly. some of those people would would vote for him, and so. I wonder yeah. if the issue represents itself in the future in a different way, but but still with similar uh, types of people or supporters of, of the issue, if it then potentially poses a problem for him down the road. I think that this was all part of the calculation by Doug Ford and his closest advisors. They took a look at this thing and they said, you know, the people who are supporting this are mostly going to vote for us. Do we want to get on their wrong side? And what percentage was there there? They analyzed, they said, well, we'll fight. We'll say that a provincial premier doesn't have to show up in front of a federal commission of inquiry. And guess what? Federal court said they were right on that. And he won his election. That was the number one goal. Now he's got four and a half years to look at this thing. But at the time of Rulo, his election was just a couple of months away. The last thing he needed was to get on the wrong side of some of his key voters and their supporters and everybody that they'd been talking to on social media. It was a brutal political calculation. There was strong wording in Rulo's report saying, you know, they let down the side. Overall, if you're looking at it in crass political terms, pretty, pretty hard to find fault with the decision that Ford took. Okay, I'm going to leave our discussion there. Thanks so much to the front bench and all of you for joining the discussion tonight. Uh, Brian Gallant, Tom Mulcair, Lisa Raitt, and Emily Nicola. I'm back in just a moment with today's takeaway. Stay right there. Welcome back to Power Play. Just before I get to today's takeaway, I want to show you on the screen ahead of you there some important information about inflation. It is continuing to edge down. New numbers from Statistics Canada show the consumer price index rose on average by 5.9% in January over the year before, and that compares to 6.3% in December. It also continues a series, really, of declines that uh, StatsCan has posted since the summer. You can see them all, the successive declines right there. Despite all of that, however, and this is definitely, I'm sure, what you are feeling at the grocery store, those bills at the grocery store continue to hit really hard. January prices, for example, are up 11.4% compared to last year. The CPI, the Consumer Price Index, declined mostly because of cellular services and used car sales. So that's the big driver of stuff going down. But grocery bills, as you can tell, are still going up. So that's something to keep in mind with inflation as we see those numbers posted. However, it's probably enough of an abatement that uh, you will see a pause in the, um, in the interest rate hikes, in projected interest rate hikes. I want to do switch over, as you can see there, to our takeaway today. It's all about Roxham Road. That is the border between Quebec, Canada, but in Quebec and the United States. It's not covered by what's known as the Safe Third Country Agreement, and that means that asylum seekers cross by foot 
over that border and then their asylum claims are processed here in Canada instead of being turned away back to the United States. I asked Federal Immigration Minister Sean Fraser how the negotiations with the United States are going to modernize the agreement. Here's what he said. It is a work in progress. There is work that remains to be done and regulatory processes on the American side of the border as well as uh, whatever measures we must implement in Canada. Uh, but my sense is, is one of optimism that we'll be able to find a lasting solution in a relatively short period of time. So Immigration Minister Sean Fraser says there that he is seeing some positive signs in those negotiations with the United States. I should point out, however, that those negotiations have been going on prior to the pandemic. In fact, since 2018, the minister who preceded Minister Fraser had embarked on discussions to modernize the agreement. Neither party, the United States or Canada, has defined exactly what modernization means. We will stay on top of that issue, however. And right now, I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great night.